Hey, how are you? Hey, I am doing well. I don't know that I have a ton to report. It's just been a busy week of work and school and family. All the good things. They've been going well, but nothing remarkable, honestly. How are you? I am doing awesome. Ooh. Yeah. I have been working over the last couple of months to develop some coaching and training resources for associate pastors and launched all of that a couple of weeks ago on associateleadership.com. And all of that is great. But one of the big steps that I had to take in order to do that was to get credentialed with the International Coaching Federation. And I got my credentials uh, literally just today. So I am through the moon. It has taken me a year and a half to get that credential. So I am super excited about that. Heck yeah. Congratulations. That is super exciting. Yeah, I'm so pumped. Uh, it's been a really fun journey. And really, it's the first phase of a longer journey that I really am excited to be on. And so I'm really pumped because that took some work. And it's always nice to be able to say, yes, I did that. Right. That's a big deal. So I know that we haven't talked a lot on the podcast about associate leadership or what it is you're doing. And honestly, it it's uncomfortable, right? Because we don't want to be too self-promoting. But at the same time, I think what you're doing is amazing. So I want to just give you a couple of minutes to just like, what is associate leadership? How does it fit with coaching? And what are you trying to do? Oh, okay. Um, Sure. I spent 20 years pastoring as an associate pastor. And associate pastors are really the folks who take the vision of the church and turn it into a reality. And as I was an associate pastor, one of the things that was both interesting and frustrating to me was most of the leadership development resources that were focused on church leaders tended to not hit me where I was at as an associate pastor. A lot of them were either on the one's hand, they were focused on lead pastors and helping them equip them to lead as the senior leader in an organization. Or on the other hand, they were financially pricing me out because they were too expensive because they expected me to be making an executive or senior leader's paycheck. So I often just needed either training or coaching that would help me be good at my job, but there really wasn't anything. And so when I left the church I was at for the last couple of years, I decided I was going to give a shot at developing some training resources. So what are the key elements that any associate needs to know in order to be a great associate? And really, as I talked to lead pastors, there were four things that they talked about over and over again. And so I intentionally built some training around those four areas. And then the other major, major piece of this is that most associate pastors, they really need someone to help create space for a conversation in which they can do more than just read a book or go to a conference. A lot of the associates that I've talked to, they have the information that they need. 
They just need the space to figure out how to take that information, tap into their own motivations, their own drives and strengths, and figure out how to develop a plan to accomplish their goals that matches their church culture and their personal passions and calling. And if you give them the space to do that, then suddenly they are mobilized to do what the local church is asking them to do in a whole different level. And that's really what coaching is about. And so that's why I got uh, my coaching certification was really I wanted the skills to help ask the right questions to help associate pastors really get themselves fired up and find that motivation in order to do the work that they've been assigned to do in their local church context. Does that make sense? Oh my goodness. Talk about getting fired up and empowered to do what you've been called to do. Just listening to you talk about that and no prep. I mean, I didn't tell you I was going to give you the space to do that. And there you went. You just fired it off with passion and with excitement. And I know a deep, deep knowledge base as well. So how cool. I'm super glad that you're launching this endeavor and that you've uh, pursued the training and the qualifications and the information necessary to do it well. So, so cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see where the journey takes me. But, uh, you know, I, I know you called about something else. I'm curious to hear what you wanted to talk about. Well, I'm actually going to change things up on you. We actually, Ooh. yeah, we had kind of predetermined that we were going to talk about a passage in John 14. And I'm hoping I can just surprise you and say, can we do that next week? Because I just heard something at church this week that I think would be really cool to talk about. Oh, I would love to. Uh, that sounds great. Okay. All right. Well, let me try to lay the backdrop here. And so my church, every uh, the first Sunday in February is what they call Vision Sunday, and it's kind of a budget meeting, but it's really just like a report out, here's where we are with the staff, here's where we are financially, here's where we are with our vision, and all of these things. And in the midst of this, my pastor put together a short presentation about the different types of churches that exist in America. And with that foundation, he tried to paint a picture of where we want to be as a church in the light of that. So if I can, I'd like to kind of show you or tell you about what he said about these three different churches. And then I'd love to get your opinion. What does it mean to put these three ideas together? Mm, I love that. I mean, I'm already intrigued because one of the things that perturbs me is that many times when I talk to other Christians, they will often say things like, you know, the American church is like this. And my experience is that the American church is not monolithic. Mm. There's not just one thing going on in the American church. So any grid that offers to help us parse out different strands or streams of experience or approach or theology or methodology in the church, I think is inherently helpful because it's offering to take the conversation beyond the American churches like this. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And to some extent, any model is reductionistic. 
any model mm-hmm. tries to paint with a broad brush and doesn't necessarily do justice to any one church. And so this is going to do the same thing, but hopefully in a more generous way. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So I'm going to take you back to, I don't know, maybe eighth grade or freshman year of high school where you first learned about Venn diagrams, right? These circles that overlap and it's the overlap that we're talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. So picture in your mind, if you will, three circles, and we're going to use Trinitarian language to describe each of these circles, Father, Son, and Spirit. And big bucket wise, my pastor kind of laid these out in the following way. But before I say that, I'll say that he stole this, unashamedly stole this directly from another pastor. And that pastor is Josh Howardson. He's a pastor down at Lake Point Church down in Texas. So he's like, hey, let me give credit where credit is due. So I'm going to pass the same word along Uh, anyway. But this model says Father Churches, Son Churches, and Holy Spirit Churches. And Father churches are the real doctrinally specific sorts of churches, high value on the Bible and correct doctrine. Son churches are being the hands and feet of Jesus kind of churches. They're out in the community. They're doing, they're meeting the needs of their community and put a high, high emphasis on action and community service and social justice. And then spirit churches I don't think I need to explain that to you. You probably need to explain that to me. Um, but, you know, spirit churches are the, not that the other two things are not important, but that the most important thing is to have an authentic encounter with the Holy Spirit. Hopefully that is a reasonable way to categorize that for you. Absolutely. The magic word there is always encounter for people in my circle. So that's exactly right. So I would love to just for a moment, Pick your brain. Like, what do you think are, you know, father churches at their best? What, how would you say that that looks? And father churches at their worst, what might that look like? We'll go through each of the circles, try to paint a picture of like a generous view of each church and maybe their tendencies that are more negative. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. You know, when I think of what you're calling father churches, highly doctrine oriented churches, at their best, I think that they are deeply in love with the beauty of truth. Mm. These are the Jonathan Edwards people who are engaging their whole selves in trying to understand what's right, what's true, what's right, what's true. And so they are delving deep into who is God. What is he really like? What does the Bible actually say? Let's get into the nitty gritty, not because we want to be difficult or argumentative, but because there is this sort of deep appreciation for the beauty of truth, and it cultivates in them a deep love for God to know him. Hmm. Yeah. Does that sound right? What do you think about that? I love that. And I think you're exactly right. I come from a Baptist tradition, which we've already said on this podcast many times. And so Baptists tend to fall into this father church, high doctrine sort of church. And I think you categorized it very well. But because this is my tradition, let me pick on it a little bit. I think at their worst, 
their tendencies are to be a little, not a little, sometimes a lot legalistic. They forget that the truth of God is equally balanced with the love of God and the action of God and the action required of his people. I think it's easy to focus on doctrine to the exclusion of relationship, both with God and with others. And we said this on a different episode, to accidentally elevate the Bible to the fourth member of the Trinity. I think that's father churches at their worst. Would you agree? Yeah. And the only thing I would probably add to that I don't think you said was, we've often talked about the fact that theology can be a fence, who is an insider and who's an outsider. And Mm. this particular group of people can really draw that fence very narrowly. Sure. To be an insider, you've got to believe the right thing about the end times and exactly when the rapture happens relative to the millennium and exactly what the dual nature of Jesus means and exactly how creation actually happened and on and on and on and how baptism should be done. And, uh, you know, like they're the ones who will draw the circle around who's an actual Christian a little too narrowly based on truth. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. All right. Well, what about for sun churches? Yeah, I know the idea that this gives me in my thinking, and I'm curious if it's what he was talking about. Uh, When I think of sun churches, I automatically think of the inner city urban churches that I have served with and among that actively champion ideas like incarnational living. It's the inner city churches that are saying, let's live in the neighborhood where our church is. Let's serve in the neighborhood where our church is so that we are living with the people in relationship with the people who we worship with. It's inner city churches that are doing tremendous amounts of compassion ministry, not for those people over there and we're going to be the saviors and they're going to, but actually for people who they are in deep relationship with. And so when I think of sun churches, incarnational churches, I automatically start to think of these kind of inner city churches, many of whom honestly are not in the evangelical world, but they are far more mainstream, mainline churches that are getting their hands dirty and changing lives every single day. And we would often joke when I was at the church I was at in Boston that we had a lot more in common with the liberal churches that were serving in the city where we were than we had with the suburban evangelical churches that theoretically believed what we believed. And I think this is exactly why. Yeah. I don't know that I have the data to be able to draw a clear distinction between suburban and urban. Clearly, you have spent a majority, well, the entirety of your pastoral career in urban settings doing exactly that. And so I think that divide looks a little stronger for you, and it feels very muddy for me. But I think regardless of whether or not you find these in the urban centers or in suburban centers, what I think the 
the thing that they have in common is is where they put the emphasis, right? Mm. What are they putting the emphasis on? The emphasis is on what a more liberal church might say is social justice. And I think sometimes in conservative circles that has a negative slant. And so I you know, or maybe some would say biblical justice. But either way, it's getting out and doing. Uh, these are the churches that have a very active food bank. These are the churches that have AA meetings and NA meetings. And these are the churches that have drug and alcohol, you know, housing and various other sorts of things. They are actively out there doing for the community, for the homeless community, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And on the darker side of this, you know, if we're looking at what are the strengths and what is the potential weakness of this kind of church, these churches are very tempted to think we are doing, and you even heard a little bit of this in the way that I talked a few minutes ago, we're doing the real work of Jesus and those other churches are just talking about it. Mm. And I know, ironically, that I land in this, my heart lands in this camp because I am deeply inclined to the weaknesses of this camp. That's interesting. I think that is probably something that only an insider would have knowledge of, right? Because that's an attitude thing, not necessarily something visible from the outside. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think the other side of this that it could potentially be this type of church at their worst is that they celebrate social justice to the exclusion of all else. And so doctrine Mm. no longer matters. Truth no longer matters. Having an encounter or an engagement with the Holy Spirit does not matter. All that matters is meeting the needs of our fellow man. And they have a tendency to boil Jesus's ministry down to that solitary thing. Yeah, exactly. It's about what you do and it doesn't matter what you believe. And that's a deeply dangerous place to land. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay. So the last one, I feel rather unqualified to talk about. I think we've already said spirit churches. uh, You said that the the word encounter is a huge word for people in your churches. And a spirit church values an encounter with the Holy Spirit, believes that the Holy Spirit is active today, and that both the gifts of the Spirit— and the fruits of the Spirit are things to be sought after and desired and grown into. Is that accurate? That's a big piece of it. The only thing I would add in my experience of what I think spirit churches really mean, there's this really pronounced emphasis on altar time, meaning a moment when anybody can come forward and pray at the end of the service Because what's going to change you is an encounter moment. Mm. And so you go to the altar and walk away changed because of an encounter with the Holy Spirit where you think differently, see something differently, are set free from something, transformed, whatever, by this moment with God. And that is incredibly important to the practiced sort of theology of spirit churches. Come and be changed by the moment. Wow. Yeah. Again, with that word encounter, I can see that playing out. That's great. Mm -hmm. 
which leads, if I can be the one who criticizes, since I theoretically live in this tradition, though, like I said, my heart, it may be more in the Jesus circle than the spirit circle. But the great danger here, I think, as an insider, is this belief that I'm going to be changed by a moment, which erodes the emphasis on discipleship process that Mm. I think is wildly important. That's fantastic. Again, what a great criticism that only somebody from the inside would be able to give, I think. I would put another potential weak point here where, again, the gifts of the Spirit are emphasized to the exclusion of good theology and sort Mm -hmm. of the scriptural boundaries around how those gifts are to be expressed and utilized in the church. And I feel like the encounter with the Holy Spirit is elevated above the teaching of how that gift is to be used. And I think that can be problematic. My favorite thing about your evaluation of sun churches and spirit churches is that you are clearly somebody in the father tradition evaluating (laughs) them. Because both of them, what you said was their theology may not be good enough. Uh, Right. Um, Yes. Yes, it is. Right. Uh, Which in and of itself, I think really speaks to one of the strengths of this model. You know, what comes to mind here is the simple division of head, hands, and heart. Hmm. And the father churches are churches that love God with all their their mind. And the son churches are churches that love God with all their strength. They do things for Jesus. And the spirit churches are churches that love God with all their heart. And Hmm. I think each one has the weakness, uh, potential weakness of not doing the other two things well. Yeah. One or both, right? You can be either a hands or Jesus kind of church, or you can be a heart or Holy Spirit kind of church and have really lousy theology. But on the other side of things, you could be a head or father kind of church or a Holy Spirit or heart kind of church. And really miss the importance of compassion and social justice as the expression of our faith and all the way around the circle. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the point that our pastor was getting at in painting these three circles, because again, this is the Venn diagram approach, right? These aren't just three circles that exist all by themselves. They overlap. And it's the point at which all three of these circles overlap that he really wanted to drive us toward. And I really appreciated what he had to say about that. He said, look, you're all coming into this church with prior church experiences and personal preferences that lean into one of these three circles. And Mm, absolutely, it's going to make all of you uncomfortable to try to hit the center. It's just going to make you uncomfortable in different ways. And I thought that was really, really insightful. And clearly I have, like you have already said, I've got a bent toward the father churches, the doctrine churches. That's my comfort zone. But I'm going to need to be stretched into more 
social justice, more hands and feet of Jesus, meeting needs in tangible ways. And I'm going to be, I'm going to need to be stretched into having an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I need to be pulled those directions. And that's the, if I am too far into my own circle, I'm not anywhere close to those other two circles and I'm not hitting the center. And so I'd love to know how you conceive of the center. What is that target, that sweet spot? Mm. You know, this is a great question. So I want to throw a different answer out there and see what you think of it. It is very consistent with what we care about on our podcast. I want to suggest that on this map these three circles create, we're going to be drawn in one direction or another. If you think you are flawlessly in the center, what it means is you're not self-aware. And so that being the case, my working hypothesis is not that we could all aim for exact center, because I don't think that that's accurate. I, I don't think that's authentic to our individuality. But what I think is important is that we surround ourselves with people who perhaps are oriented differently than us Mm. so that they can rub off on us and pull us towards the middle as opposed to surrounding ourselves with people who are in our own circle who, even if they are good, may accidentally pull us away from the middle simply because they are in our own circle. Mm. I like that a lot. And you're right, it is something that has become so valuable on our podcast, and it's because it's a reflection of the friendship that you and I have had for 20 years. You live in spirit-son churches, and I live in father churches, and we pull—not that you don't have an appreciation for doctrine, that is not at all what I'm trying to say, but we pull— Nor would it be accurate to say you have no— concern for an encounter with Jesus in church. Yeah, no, exactly. But we pull each other toward the center. Mm -hmm. We pull each other toward healthy expressions of our faith, and some of them that feel uncomfortable or foreign to our particular bent. Mm -hmm. And we have valued that about our friendship, and so therefore it's been a value on our podcast. And I felt like this conversation or this thing that my pastor was talking about really brought it out for the whole congregation to wrestle with together in such a healthy way. Yeah, exactly. This is why I like the idea of arriving at the center through dynamic tension rather than comfortable stillness, Uh, right? I want to be drawn through relationship to the center. This is why, honestly, my first thought when you were sharing these thoughts that your pastor was sharing. Uh, And I've had one conversation with your pastor, and I have to say he was one of the most well-thought-out pastors I've talked to in a long time. So I have incredible amounts of respect for him. So I don't mean this as a criticism. It just would be the first questions I would ask him if I were in conversation. Mm. But those first questions I would ask him would be, okay, where do you think He's talking about where the congregation individually lands. Where does he think he lands on this? And who who is in his life pulling him in the Mm. other direction? 
And, and he may have answers to that. I'm, I'm assuming he does. It's not like I think I'm asking, I would be asking him something he hadn't thought about. But when he, you said that about the congregation, that was my first thought was, okay, where's he? And how does he compensate for that? That's so good. I had a conversation with one of the pastors who has a different bent than the senior pastor, a different circle mm. that they feel comfortable in. And they were expressing what it was like to be what they felt was like the lone voice for that circle and pulling that direction and fearing that that was causing too much tension or that it came across wrong or whatever. And for the record, this person I think is doing a fantastic job. But at any rate, I love the words you're using, dynamic tension. We're going to need dynamic tension in the congregation, and there's going to need to be dynamic tension on the staff in order to hold these things in balance. And I think that's what you're saying, and I think it's so wise. Yeah, that's exactly it. It, it. I don't know if it's wise. At least it is acknowledging our own limitations, right? If I think somehow I'm someday going to arrive at a place where I am perfectly balanced within myself, rather than thinking, I know I am not balanced within myself, so who can I seek out that will provide the correctives that I need in my life, that second way just seems more honest to me. You're exactly right. This is why I love coming to these conversations. I really thought you were going to directly answer the question I asked, which was, what does the center look like? And instead, you said, well, I don't know. It looks like a whole lot of people just tugging and pulling and working together to make it all right. And, oh, yeah, you're right. It does. I just love it. It was such a great answer. Hmm, thank you. I think I'm amazing, too. <laughs> and next week, we'll talk about humility. <laughs> I have asked for that to be a topic at least once. And we both decided we were too good at it and didn't really need to talk about it. So, you know, maybe at some later point. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll we'll put on a master class for all the peons who don't understand what humility is. <laughs> okay. Well, I would love to turn to the audience and ask, what circle do you tend to identify with? And who or what has helped pull you into some healthier expressions, some more balance? in how you live out your faith. I would love to know how that dynamic tension has played out in everyone's life. Yeah. And this is a great opportunity, by the way, to forward this particular episode to somebody who's in a different circle from you and for you and them to have a conversation about what does it mean to pull one another towards the center? This is a fascinating conversation to get to have. You know, my challenge, I guess, for anybody listening to this right now is to try to find three people, one in each circle that you can have this conversation with. Have Ooh. coffee with two other people and see what comes out of the conversation. Say, hey, this is the model. What does that look like? What do you think? What do I think? What is it? The same questions we were hitting back and forth about what are the strengths and weaknesses or the potential best way of being in one of the circles and the potential weaknesses or less ideal ways of being in one of the circles. What a conversation to have. Oh my gosh. Yeah, for sure. All right. 
Well, that is a little bit of what I've been thinking about. I want to know, Josh from Missouri, what have you been thinking about? Mm, Well, you know, I set aside Mondays to listen to books about being a good leadership coach. And so today I was listening to uh, Marsha Reynolds' book that is titled The Discomfort Zone. And she just makes this wonderful point that I think is both obvious and important for those of us who try to affect change in people's lives. She basically said, it is in the moments of discomfort that we are the most likely to change. And so as leaders, we should never be avoiding the uncomfortable conversations. Mm. Now, it's more than an article because there are a whole lot of ways to enter into that discomfort zone dangerously. But if you are well-equipped, well-trained, and going in with the right intentions and the right skill sets, you can make more of a difference in somebody's life in the discomfort zone that is caused by complicated life circumstances or having to call somebody out on a difficult truth than you can ever have if they just live in the comfort zone. You know, this is where I really appreciate everything that I'm experiencing in my counseling degree because... Mm. What they're pushing every single student to do is sit down and do your own work. What is your, you know, one term is location of self. Who are you? What are your unique identities? What are the intersections of those identities? And let's talk about all of those things. And let's make sure you're comfortable in locating yourself within all of these different ranges. Because... Unless you have developed a comfort level in your own skin and a comfort level in talking about these various things, you may inadvertently avoid them when sitting down and talking with a client. So you have to go through and do your own work before you can even think that you're going to be willing to engage those tough conversations with somebody else. Mm. Or ready to engage them well. You know, there's this... There's this famous aphorism that hurting people hurt people, right? Mm. And you'll either avoid the conversation or you'll rush in where angels fear to tread and do more damage than help, all the while patting yourself on the back because, look at me, I'm having the tough conversation. Uh, Yes. I love the fact that counseling programs focus on making sure that the people who get through them are healthy. Because you're absolutely right. You have to be healthy and have done your own work. You know, we could trace this straight back to Jesus, right? Take the log out of your own eye before you try to help take the speck out of the other person's eye. Right. Yes. So uh, that's awesome. I think that's a great point. But what else? What else are you thinking about? I know you were thinking about the model of different kinds of churches. Uh, and of course, you're in your counseling program, but I'm just curious of all the things that are going on in your head, what rises to the top? <laughs> well, this is not going to be a surprise to you because as soon as I read this the other day, I screenshotted it and sent it over to you. This is mm. 
This is uh, Dr. Reeves' commentary on the book of Matthew, and he's talking about why Jesus told his disciples that they need to take up their cross and follow him. And I want to read just a small section of this. This is his comments about, uh, I guess this chapter is titled Matthew 16, 21 through 17, 13. So he says this, he simply said, it is necessary. Not only that, he said it was necessary for his disciples to share the same fate, to die with him. That's why he warned them that they were going to continue to follow him to Jerusalem. They'd better bring their own cross. This wasn't just a matter of dying for them. Jesus expected his disciples to die with him, for that would be the only way they would save their life, by losing it. Jesus would have no cheerleaders, disciples who would try to encourage him from the sidelines as they watched him die for their sins. We're praying for you, Jesus. Lord God, please help Jesus carry his cross. God, give him the strength to die for our sins. Come on, Jesus. You can do it. Don't give up. We're right here. If you make it to the end, we'll love you forever. No, Jesus will have no spectator disciples. Whenever Christ calls us, his call leads us to death. Mm. And he goes on to describe how we tend in our worship songs to celebrate Jesus's victorious death for our sins, and we should. But there is no corresponding song about our need to die with him. And so we're missing half the point here. It was super challenging. I'll have to tell you that. That's heavy. Yeah. The idea of sacrifice and what that means for us in our context that is theoretically friendly to the gospel is a fascinating and heavy and complicated question. Right. I feel like this idea of suffering, this is, I don't know what God's trying to do here because we did our exclusion and embrace study a number of episodes back. And that was calling disciples to remember, hey, you follow a crucified Messiah And that means you need to emulate him and live a crucified life. And then you get moments like this, or even my sermon on Psalm 91 that helps us remember, oh yeah, suffering is still a part of it. And then you and I have talked about potentially pursuing a study in Revelation. And so much of Revelation has to do with the suffering and even martyrdom of the saints. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I think God is trying to get in touch, you know, trying to communicate to me something about the necessity of suffering and that it is an integral part of the Christian life. And that is not a lesson I really care to learn. Yeah. Well, and, and forget trying to communicate to you. That may be a lesson he is trying to communicate to all of us and is using a megaphone to communicate whether we are listening well or not. Yeah. Man. Okay. Well, Man. hey, let's let's change it the topic, now huh? Feels, yeah. It feels really, really spiritually weird to go from that to, hey, so speaking of lighthearted and fun topics, are you ready for a witch Josh question? Right? Like <laughs> I know. Yeah, I need a something. But I am ready for a which Josh question yeah. for whatever right. it's worth. Well, let me 
Let me ask you anyway. Okay. Uh, here is this week's Witch Josh question. Which Josh once ate a raw pork chop without knowing it? <laughs> and I just have to say this conjures such delightful mental images for me <laughs> that I will freely acknowledge it's not me because I want to know the story behind this. Oh my gosh. I, are you experiencing some suffering as you're picturing all of this? I, I know. It's very funny. Like, how does one eat an entire pork chop without knowing it? Is the first question that comes to mind. Well, okay, well, um, wait, hang on, hang on. I knew that I was eating a pork chop. How much barbecue sauce does it take to not know it's raw? Um, like, yeah. So yeah. please tell us this story. So, okay, I'm a teenager. I'm like running around. I'm I've got like theater after school, and so I have to like run home from school grab something to eat real quick and then bolt back out the door for a couple more hours of theater practice and then come home, do my homework, whatever. This is like my routine. So I come crashing in the door. I've got 10 minutes to eat and then I got to bolt back out and I go into the kitchen and lo and behold, what appears to me, my mom has made pork chops and this is, this is fantastic. So I snag one off the pan I slap it in the microwave for a couple of minutes and I, again, barbecue sauce or whatever, just douse the thing and just wolf it down and then head back out the door. And, you know, my mom later is like, how in the world? I hadn't cooked that yet. What were you thinking? And it was only after she's like flabbergasted with me that I'm like, it was raw. Like never knew that it was raw. So Tells you how much teenage boys stop to A, chew, and B, taste what they're eating. Well, and it speaks to the titanium lining of the teenage boy's digestive system that nothing went wrong. I will tell you, <laughs> at 43 years old, if I ate a raw pork chop, it would not be a good couple of days. No, no. I I guarantee the same is true for me today, but... You know, at whatever age I was, 15, 16 years old, like that was totally fine. That's gross. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for keeping it raw uh, oh. here on the On the Phone with Josh podcast. Are you ready to do this again next week? Okay. I got to recover from that dad joke, but yes, I'll be ready. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye. All right.